Hello, everyone. This is Martin Willis with the Antique Auction Forum, and welcome to episode number 129 with Adrian von Furst. Adrian lives in Glasgow, Scotland, and uh, he is an academic in the field of Chinese export silver. Very interesting and nice gentleman. I hope you enjoy today's show. A couple of quick announcements. You can like us on Facebook or you can follow us on Twitter. If you'd like to contact me, that's info at antiqueauctionforum.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm on Skype in Scotland with Adrian von Furst. How are you, Adrian? I'm great, thanks. And uh, I think it's kind of an interesting topic we're going to cover today. It's Chinese export silver. Now, for the listening audience, can you please explain what exactly Chinese export silver is and uh, when did the Chinese begin creating pieces for export? Well, Chinese export silver, I mean, it's basically what it says on the can. It, it, it's silver that wasn't made for the Chinese home market. It was made for export. And it, it began in um, 1745, which is when the Treaty of Nanking kicked in and... and um, the British and Americans were allowed territory in Canton to trade with the, the um, Chinese. This was a result of the Opium Wars, uh, of the Chinese losing the Opium Wars, as it were. So Chinese export silver existed from uh, around 1746, and it lasted until 1940 when the when the revolution happened in China, then it, then it just disappeared. Does that mean that most of it was exported to England at that time? Um, it, it, it wasn't just exported to uh, Great Britain. There were two destination, main destinations. One was Great Britain and one was America. And it's basically because in America, the Massachusetts Bay sea merchants uh, were based in Canton. On The Americans had their own territory within Canton, and the British had the same. So the Massachusetts Bay merchants uh, had one uh, um, exclusive American area, and the British had one which was actually adjoining the American one. So, so most of the silver went either to America or to Great Britain. Oh, I see. Okay. This is something I should say right off the bat. I know little about, very little, um, and I have had a few pieces of export come through auctions over the years, but, but very rarely. So I was assuming that most of it would be in Europe instead of over here. Do you actually find items in America as well as uh, throughout Europe? Half of the Chinese export silver in the world is, is probably in the United States today. Um, but you're not a dealer, you're specifically an academic? Totally an academic. No, I, 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 I used to be a dealer and an academic, and I've given up dealing. I'm, I've, I'm concentrating on being an academic. But do you still have to keep your thumb on the market on what these things are, are selling for out there? 
Oh, quite definitely. I mean, I, I, I do... I'm actually... I do consultancy work for quite a few auction houses around the world, and, and quite a lot of the auction houses now use my catalogue of Maker's Mark as their, as their reference guide. So I, I have a lot of auction houses in contact with me all the time trying to identify pieces. So through that process, I know, you know, I can track what pieces are, are achieving in auction. And, and I also advise auction houses what, what estimate prices they should be putting on, on uh, pieces. Are a lot of the pieces um, unmarked? And if so, how would you identify that work? Chinese export silver, true Chinese export silver is never unmarked. I see. Mm -hmm. And if it's unmarked, it probably means it's not Chinese export silver, but silver made in China for the Chinese market. Or it can mean that it's very, very early Chinese silver because they only started marking silver early 18th century. So there is silver for example, in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, none of it is marked, but it was made in the 17th century. Do the Chinese have, like, um, assay regulating, like in Europe? No. Um, they had marks. Their marks had nothing to do with uh, assay. Um, there's an int- At the beginning of the early Chinese export silver, there's, there are... Certain makers had marks which have become known as pseudo-hallmarks, but they're not that at all. It's simply that sea merchants were bringing silver from Britain to Canton to copy because making silver in Canton was much cheaper than making it in Britain, and the same goes for America. So... The Chinese, at the very early part of Chinese export silver, they faithfully copied the pieces they had and they copied the hallmark because they didn't understand what the hallmark was. <laughs> what Did they have any type of, um, any type of regulation at all in the purity no. of silver? No? No. It, 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 it's impossible to regulate anything that came out of China in the... 19th and 20th centuries, it, 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 it's just an impossible thing to even have contemplated doing. I see. Now let's... Uh, the Chinese on. don't like sticking to rules. Uh, <laughs> okay, what, what initially sparked your interest in, in specializing in Chinese export silver? Um, it happened purely by accident about 16 years. I mean, I've always been interested in collecting silver, um, and at the time, I was living in Israel, and I used to buy silver regularly from a silver dealer in Tel Aviv. And one day, I was just in there looking at what he had, and he said, oh, you, you might be interested in this. And I said, what is it? And he said, it's, it's a trophy, but it come, it's made in Shanghai. And I said, how do you know it's made in Shanghai? Because it actually looked like a European Art Nouveau piece. So he showed me the mark, and he said, it's it's a mark of a maker in Shanghai. And and I just stupidly assumed that anything that was made in Shanghai was 
a cheap copy. So I paid $40 for this trophy. And, and I just literally sat on this trophy for about 10 years. And one day it appeared, uh, reappeared, and I investigated it. And, I, and from that day on, I've been interested in Chinese export silver. So it was purely by accident. Wow. Now, did that piece end up being something significant? It's, it, it was significant in the fact that it, it was pure Art Nouveau, and that's quite unusual in Chinese export silver. But the significant thing, probably for me and for probably for your readers or, or audiences, is that having paid $40 for it, I actually sold it for $3,000. Hmm. And everyone loves to do that. <laughs> so that... That's, that's probably quite significant. <laughs> yeah, I would say. Now, a, a couple of uh, things come to mind. After all these years uh, of intense research, are you continually learning, and do you ever get stumped? I continually learn, and, and I'm continually amazed at how much new information come, comes to light. Um, I've never been stumped. I mean, it may have taken me quite a while to figure out, um, to get to the bottom of something that was puzzling me. But um, I, I think a good example is, I mean, I have, you know, I've created a catalogue of Maker's Mark and I'm just about completing the second edition of that. And there are, it's twice the size of the first edition and there is something like... 25 to 30 additional makers that I've discovered since the first edition, wow. which was only six months ago. Um, this is available on your website, and I'm going to have that link right under this podcast. Um, I think of Imperial Pieces as the finest made. As a matter of fact, at James Julia Auctions, we have coming up an Imperial um, seal that is a gilt bronze dragons. It's just an amazing piece. So I think of that as the finest made. But what are the finest pieces that were made for export? The finest pieces that were made for export, um, I mean, it's quite subjective. The, the, the early sort of late 18th century, early 19th century pieces were, were basically extremely good copies, if not comparable pieces to Paul Revere and wow. Paul Storr. Um, mm -hmm. And they're probably even better because Chinese export silver was always consistently of a heavier gauge silver than American and British silver because silver wasn't perceived as having a value how it was perceived in America and Britain. So to the Chinese, it was just a material to the Americans, it was something to aspire to. You, you do get extraordinary pieces, high-quality pieces in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. But saying that, in, in the latter part of the Victorian era, there's some absolutely extraordinary trophy pieces made by silversmiths like Wang Hing, which I would defy an American or British silversmith to actually be able to make. So there are some extraordinary pieces out there, and there's a lot of them out there. They're still out there. Now, did they use uh, gadruning, and did they chase pieces 
Did they cast pieces? What were the different types of methods they used to make silver? They never, they never cast. They did a lot of applied work, like they would have a highly polished piece and then they would engrave and then apply more layers onto that. They didn't do a lot of embossing because they were using very heavy-gauge silver. They did a lot of what's called reticulated, it's pierced work. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that in particular in the 19th century. But it's peculiarly Chinese. I mean, the 18th and early 19th century pieces look, to all intents and purposes, like British or European or American silver. From what I understand, the Chinese silversmiths made a great volume of items compared to American. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, they did. Um, the, the silvers, the the... the the main silversmiths uh, were—they weren't small workshops. None of the Chinese silversmiths were small workshops. Um, they had a lot of artisan silversmiths working under the name, under the main name. So let's take, for example, Wang Hing, who was the most prolific of. Chinese export silver makers. There was no such person as Wang Hing. It's a fictitious name. Really? Um, but um, you had a previous question about the mark being an assay mark. The peculiar thing of uh, mid-19th to late-19th century Chinese export silver is there's the mark of the main maker, Wang Hing, and then there's a second mark, using Chinese characters, which is called the chop mark. And the chop mark is actually the name of the artisan silversmith responsible for making that piece. Now, there could have been a 100 artisan silversmiths working under the main maker. And they were, they were itinerant. I mean, they didn't exclusively work for the same maker. So you, you see chop mark names appearing in Wang Hing and then you'll see the same name appearing uh, under another main name. So there were a lot of artisan silversmiths, much more than existed in America or Britain. Did I just hear you say that there was up to 100 people working under one shop? Yes. yes. Wow, that's amazing. Now, can you talk about some other noted silversmiths? Well, just a couple of examples. Well, the the earlier, I mean, there there are there's an early maker called Kuching, that's C U T S H I N G. Now, Kuching, I think Kuching is comparable to Paul to Paul Revere. Hmm. I mean, he his work was quite phenomenal. Again, Kuching is actually a fictitious name, and it's actually the name of uh, a Massachusetts Bay sea merchant called Cushing, C-U-S-H-I-N-G, who, was, who, who actually lived for a while in Canton in the American uh, territory there. And he, he was given this adopted name, Kuching. So... He went into business with uh, one of the Hong merchants. Now, the Hong merchants were like mafia, basically. 
and um, they produced a huge amount of silver for the American market. Um, but the main business of the sea merchant Cushing and the Hong merchant was opium. So silver was always a lucrative sideline. To, to opium? Yes. Wow. Isn't that something? I always talk about fakes, or a lot of times I do in these podcasts. And, you know, I uh, growing up in the, the antique and auction business, I can remember my father jokingly saying that um, the Chinese were faking antique porcelains for a thousand years. Um, yeah. And true or not, I'm not sure. But is this also true about the export? Um, have that, has that been faked? No, I've never actually, I've never actually seen a fake piece of Chinese export silver. And if you if if you know a reasonable amount about Chinese export silver, it's pretty obvious why there wouldn't be any fakes. But there are fakes. In, if strangely enough, I was looking at one today, and it was actually one that was sent to me by an American magazine, actually. Hmm. Uh, one of their readers was trying to identify a piece and, and they thought that they had a 17th century pair of palace vases in silver. And I looked at these pieces, I looked at the images, and... What I discovered was that the inscriptions on the vases were were 17th century, alluded to something happening in the 17th century, but the vases were made not by a Chinese export silver maker, but by a Chinese silversmith for the home market in uh, Shanghai in the 19th century. So he'd copied two vases with the inscription in the 19th century of a pair of 17th century vases. So that is a fake, but it's not Chinese export silver. It was made for the Chinese market. Yeah, I understand. And now, are the Chinese interested in actually buying some of the export back, or are they concentrating mostly on the uh, home silver? The main reason why Chinese export silver is what I would call a hot category. I mean, I've referred to it as being a hot silver category in auction houses. Is is because the only people buying it are affluent Chinese. And there's um, a lot more affluent Chinese these days. Well, than, if than you ever. read my web, if you read my website in Shanghai alone, there are seven thousand billionaires. Oh, my goodness. I I didn't even know that. That's amazing. <laughs> there are 7,000 billionaires in Shanghai, and there are 9,000 billionaires in, in Beijing. Holy mackerel. And, and, in, and by, in 15 years' time, the middle class of um, China will be more than the population of Europe and America together. Isn't that amazing? Wow. So, yeah, there's a lot of affluent people out there. That's amazing. How has the Internet affected the prices of what you are, are watching out there? Are, are there more collectors now because of it? And uh, second part of the question, can you describe 
the average collector demographically? Are they older, younger? Um, well, first of all, you've got there, there are two sets of collectors. There are there are the the old school American and British collectors who want specific pieces. I mean, they want good trophy pieces, and and there are still collectors out there buying this who are Chinese. Then there's the dealers who are buying in order to be a middleman dealer between the auction houses and the Chinese. And then there are the, there's a huge amount of Chinese buying uh, from auction houses online. Yeah. I mean, every set... I've, I've, I've acted as consultant on many auction houses in the UK, and the minute... Chinese export silver comes comes up in a sale. The phone lines and the internet goes red hot. Wow! So more it, people are collecting now than ever. Do you consider it having a strong future and filled with younger people? Yeah, I think it's well. I think it's got a strong future for several good reasons. There's a lot of it out there. Nobody actually knows how much. I would estimate there's probably about a quarter of a million pieces of Chinese export silver in Europe and America. Because it's highly sought after and achieving values way above the equivalent of European and American Georgian and Victorian silver, it's the only silver category that is actually escaping going to scrap. Wow, that's good. So it's... It's quite unique in that, in that sense that the values are far higher than the scrap value of the silver. So many nice silver pieces are getting melted because... No, it's it, heartbreaking. It really is. And uh, from what I understand, you know, people are going into these places like pawn shops and uh, places that scrap metal out and they're rescuing some pieces. Sometimes, you know, uh, Georgian pieces... Um, and I heard this story of a, a really large Tiffany trophy that was melted down, and uh, someone else told me that they rescued a, a set of George Jensen flatware out of a scrapper. You know, so that's pretty amazing that people do not have the knowledge. Well, the, the, there's a new backdoor trade sort of emerge from, you know, the scrap companies. There's a, there's a lot of online scrap companies. The people send, you know, for instant cash, are sending silver to an online scrap company. And then they're usually quite small companies, this. And, and the people who are actually unwrapping the silver have a backdoor trade going on with with people who are trying to rescue. <laughs> well, I'm glad some of it's getting rescued. Let's talk about your blog because it's pretty informational um, for the person out there that's listening. And uh, I just looked it up. It's uh, the, the link for those uh, people listening on like iTunes or Stitcher. It's Chinese-export-silver.com. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about your, your blog? Yeah, what I do, I mean, it, 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 it's an ever-expanding information resource. And it's already, I mean, the blog has been there about six months. And I, I write usually one article a week, which is usually between six to eight pages of, you know, quite in-depth information. Um, so, and that information is all kept on the blog as archive. So, 
there's a huge amount of archival information on there. So, you know, in, in 12 months, you, you're getting 48, 50 articles of that six to eight pages. I don't know None how you can write written. that much. <laughs> Nor do I, but I do it in my sleep, I think. But it's all based on my current research. I mean, there have been weeks where I've been so wound up that I've actually had to write two articles because there's too much information to get out there. Wow. Um, and I write it in a readable way. It's not, although it's part of my research, I mean, I'm not denigrating my own work, but I actually call it my comic strip work because it's not referenced or anything like that because the reference work will be on my research papers that will be published. Um, so it's readable. They're readable articles. Well, that's wonderful, and it's uh, it's great information for all those who are listening. And I certainly know who I'll be calling the next time I find some Chinese export silver. If someone wants some information, I'm, I'm sure it's not free, but uh, would they send you an email close-up of the marking and the piece separately? Is that How would they get started um, with something like that? Well, first of all, it is free for the time being. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I encourage people to send me images of the marks and the piece because it's quite... I don't like just looking at a mark. I like to look at the mark in relation to the piece. Um, and, and very often it, it happens... It's not a week goes by where somebody doesn't send me images of a mark that I've never seen before. Wow. And it's, it's, this is the way that... This is one of the main ways I discovered new makers. Well, it's always fun to talk to someone that is passionate about what they do, and you obviously are um, devoting so much time and effort into this, and you're a real asset to the business. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.